Good evening, Forest Heights Baptist Church. I'd like to welcome everyone to our evening worship service. We're going to begin by standing and singing, O Come, All Ye Faithful.
this time of worship once again. And we just pray that you grace us with your presence in a very unique and powerful and wonderful way, a way that will draw us closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. service tonight. Let's all stand as we sing My Jesus, I Love Thee.
I'd like for you to open your Bibles to uh, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, as we continue to look at this uh, vision, this dream that Daniel had, similar to uh, what Nebuchadnezzar had uh, over in chapter 2. Now, for you that uh, will be following along, we may have some more back there, but I hope everyone got one. Uh, they on the counter back, back in the back, but these will help you as far as following along in the sermon, hopefully, and little notes to take with you. According to Scripture, when the uh, great events of the end time uh, commence, we'll see a world situation not unlike what we have today. And this is what we're going to talk about towards the end of the message. The world will be divided into four major power blocks. And these power blocks consist primarily of the Western Confederacy, and it will be led by whom other than the Antichrist. And then the Southern and Northern Coalition comprised of Russia and a host of Islamic nations. And the Eastern uh, uh, Alliance is known as the Kings from the East. And these are found in Daniel 7, uh, Ezekiel 38, Daniel 11, and Revelation 16. But, uh, for now, though, we're going to be focusing in on the Western Confederation of Nations that the Bible predicts will comprise uh, a united or revived Roman Empire. And so we'll be talking about that with this dream, this vision that Daniel had. And according to Scripture, an alignment of uh, ten leaders will emerge in the end times to protect the uh, interests of the West. Now this group uh, in the end times uh, to protect the uh, interests of the West is known as the ten, the group ten. Uh, and it's sometimes called or referenced G7, G8, G20, or some other international organization comprised of the world's top governmental and economic leaders that are constantly in the headlines. And we'll talk about that later on. But as we look at this, I want us to uh, look at the scripture here in Daniel chapter 7. We, we got down to... Uh, 
verse 8 last time, but verse 9 has a scene shift. And abruptly the scene shifts from heaven or from earth to heaven. And the scene left the little horn ruling on earth known as the Antichrist and it moved to heaven. And now we're given a heavenly perspective, basically what was given on earth, but from a heavenly perspective. And it's for a reason, and that is it's a brief glimpse into glory to assure Daniel and other believers that God is in control because this was a very disturbing dream to Daniel and we'll go over this as we look at it but you know this thought is not new I mean or it's not one of a kind if you go to Revelation John had the same kind of experience didn't he he, he saw that which went in uh, you know went on earth but he also was uh, raptured up or taken up into heaven to see, uh, you know, it from a divine perspective. And so uh, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, uh, as we read that, we're transported with him to heaven because uh, we need to see that God is on the throne, that he is at the center of the universe, the same type thought. He's sovereign because what is seen on earth is so traumatic so awesome, so fearful, and, uh, you know, evil and, and uh, corrupt and, and uh, you know, disturbing that you need that heavenly vision to, to have hope and comfort. And this is what was described in Revelation 6 through 18, and now we, we go back to uh, Daniel chapter 7, and, and we're seeing the same thing. And Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 2 are, are parallel to one another. He said, As I looked, thrones were set up in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and the body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Now this is repeated again and again in Daniel, the same vision, but for more clarity. And he said, uh, you know, the other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were uh, allowed to live for a period of time in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man very interesting there coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence he was given authority glory and and sovereign power all nations and people of every language worshiped him his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, the Ancient of Days can mean, in just regular terms, uh, the old one. Ancient can. But this reference is to a special reference, and it is to God himself, God the Father. And one writer uh, commented about this uh, verse, and he said, 
This is the only verse in all the Bible in which God the Father is depicted in human form. And, uh, you know, if you look at it, you see that he is. Usually he's depicted as what? Spirit. So, but along with this human description is his holiness, his purity, his eternity, his glory. And, uh, you know, it's so important to look at names. And God's names in the Bible reveal something about his nature. Yahweh indicates he is eternally self-existing and that he is a faithful covenant keeper. And so uh, to his people, his covenant people. And, and also the name Elohim indicates that God is a mighty God, a powerful God. Adonai uh, indicates that God is Lord and is sovereign over, sovereign over all the universe. And many scholars believe that the Ancient of Days indicates that God is an eternal being. And that is so. But others also believe and point out that it deals with his divine judgment. That he is judge over the earth and people. And so in this context, the latter would seem to fit the most. But uh, also him being eternal being would be there along with it. So we're told in verse 9 that the hairs of his head, or the hair of his head, was white like wool. His clothing was as white as snow. And this apparently points to his infinite wisdom, as so often in Scripture. His holiness, his purity. This is the purity, the holiness, the wisdom of the Most High God. And then in verse 9 is a description of his throne. Very interesting, reflecting God's incredible glory here and purity. And you can compare that with Revelation chapter 4 verse 5 and 1 Timothy 6, 16 and, and uh, Psalm 104 too. And his throne was flaming with fire. The last part of that descriptive phrase and its wheels were all ablaze apparently pictures God as sitting on a chariot-like uh, throne from which he issues his sovereign decree. Now that brings to us another description that's mentioned in Ezekiel, which brings semblance to this in Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 2 through 6. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, we're told a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Fire often represents what? The presence of God. Exodus 3, 3, the burning bush experienced. And uh, chapter 13, the pillar of fire that uh, guided the Israelites through the wilderness. Fire is also pictured as going before God as a preparation for his coming. He's coming in judgment. And also it represents judgment. So our God comes... And before him is a devouring fire. Uh, it's told uh, this way in Psalm 97.3. And then also, indeed, fire goes before him. So Psalm 50 and Psalm 97. And then thousands upon thousands attended him. And that's probably referencing the countless angels who render service to God. But... We, uh, we've seen that, uh, you know, God has countless angels, and he refers to them as a multitude of the heavenly host. And also, uh, in uh, Revelation, they're referred to and described as, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
myriads and thousands and thousands of myriads. And so uh, he says, ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him, while the thousands uh, or thousand thousands serving God are angels probably. We see the ten thousands uh, times ten thousand uh, are apparently those being judged uh, by God in his divine court, those who are lost. So the court was seated and the books were open. And it's similar to the, uh, the, uh, the language of the judgment in Revelation 20:12, where it said, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. We're told that God keeps accurate records of what we do. And they will be used in future judgment. Now, we know from Scripture that one day all people will stand at the... Uh, uh, judgment seat uh, of the Lord or, or in judgment before God and unbelievers will face Christ at the great white throne judgment and that's where they after being judged will be cast into the lake of fire Christians will not appear at that judgment though will they and the reason being is because of our sal salvation which is secure in the Lord uh, but we will appear before a judgment seat. And that judgment seat is a judgment seat of Christ. And uh, with Christ, you know, this is where we will be judged according to our works, right? Of what we accomplished or didn't accomplish with what we were given. How faithful we were with it. And we will, you know, not be judged as far as uh, being cast into the lake of fire, but whether we receive crowns or not. And then we know that all believers will spend eternity with the Lord after that. They will be with him at this time, the judgment seat of Christ, and spend eternity with him uh, throughout. And so the scene now shifts back to the earth in Daniel 7, 11, and 12. Then I continue to watch because of the boastful words of the ten horn, or words the ten horn, uh, the horn, excuse me, was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So the boastful words of the horn, he, he's really caught up in this beast, this last beast, wanting to understand it's very disturbing, it's very fearful and, and ugly and and, uh, you know, the blasphemy against God, and he's wondering what in the world is going on. And so uh, this is uh, the Antichrist, of course, the picture of the Antichrist, the little horn, and he will rise to power during the tribulation period. In the beginning, he'll seem to be the Messiah to everyone, but uh, after three and a half years, his power will increase, and he will dominate the whole earth uh, as a leader, and as, uh, you know, as, a, uh, as he dominates, he will require all to worship him. Now, that will cause problems with some people because of their religion. And that means that uh, not only Jews and, and believers will be persecuted by the Antichrist, but there'll be other uh, world uh, or nations uh, or empires that worship a certain way that will have problem with this. 
And we will talk about that in a few moments. And at the end of the seven and a half years, we're told that Daniel's vision uh, said he kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So the fourth beast here evidently is referring to the Roman Empire revived at the end of times, led by none other than the Antichrist. And uh, it would be destroyed and, and, uh, and, you know, he would be destroyed and killed. And so this will not happen by another nation, though. It will happen by the Lord, divine judgment. And so the Antichrist and empire will be destroyed at Christ's second coming. Uh, it says this event will uh, put an end to what is called the, uh, the times of the Gentiles, which refers to uh, the Gentiles dominating of, uh, or domination of Israel and uh, Jerusalem uh, until, you know, that began with the period uh, of, in 606 B.C. with the Babylonian captivity and will go all the way through to the end of the tribulation. And that will be the end of the Gentile time. And so uh, the other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live uh, for a period of time. And right at the end, uh, you, we, we know that, that the Roman Empire was uh, stripped of its authority, but uh, its culture and other things have continued to live on and uh, for a certain period of time, and then it will end when the Lord takes over. And then he shifts back to heaven. And it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient days and was led in his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and the people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Of course, the ancient of days, we've already talked about reference to God the Father, the Son of Man is the messianic title that, that uh, Jesus Christ um, used himself. And the, uh, he's the second person of the Trinity referred to as, uh, by believers as second tr uh, person of the Trinity. Coming uh, with the clouds of heaven apparently refers to his divine glory there. And it says he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And so... Uh, we see that he appears before the first person of the Trinity, which is God the Father, and ancient of days. And Scripture consistently portrays Jesus in submission to the Heavenly Father in this way. Uh, we see that uh, in John chapter 6, verse 38, and also in other passages in John, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he was always in submission to the Father's will. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So the four earthly kingdoms, the four beasts, are now destroyed, and Jesus, the Messiah, is given global uh, dominion here. He's uh, all the, uh, you know, all that was the authority, the glory, the, uh, the sovereign power that all were seeking is conferred on Christ so that he is sovereign over all. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. 
This is the fulfillment of the promise from the Father where he told the Son, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will make the nations our heritage and the ends of the earth your possession in Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8. This will take place at the second coming of Christ when he comes to earth. I, Daniel, he says, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. I'm still confused. Well, you know, we've got the Bible to look back on. We can put together all this scripture. He didn't have it. Here was a vision to him, and it was very disturbing. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are the four kings that will rise from the earth. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Christ's kingdom will be everlasting. It will never be conquered by another. And this reign will be established in the future millennial kingdom. Following the millennial kingdom comes the reign of Christ forever in an eternal state. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast. You know, that fourth beast really had him down, man. He just could not get the meaning. Which was different from all the others and most terrifying. With its iron teeth and bronze claws and the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up. Before which three of them fell and the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I watched this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And so the interpretation of the, the dream is what has already been talked about. That there is coming a time when the Antichrist will rise and and he will rule for a while and then the, uh, the Lord will come and, and at his second coming he will defeat him and, and he will rule and reign forever and ever. He will start with the millennial kingdom and go into eternity ruling and reigning. Now Daniel 2 and 7, they've often been called the ABCs, I guess, of the Bible prophecy. These two companion chapters describe the four great world empires that would rule over Israel in succession. With this passage of time here that we see, we now know these four empires were Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. In Daniel 2, these four empires are pictured as four medals in a great statue that King uh, Bab or Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon saw in a dream that was given by God. Now, in Daniel 7, if you'll look at these uh, comparison here on your, your chart, uh, these same empires are pictured as four great wild beasts that come up out of the Mediterranean Sea. We talked about that last week. Now, the end time, ten king, final form of the Roman Empire, or what we might call Rome II, is pictured in Daniel 2 as the ten toes of iron and baked clay at the bottom of the great metallic 
statue. Now, in Daniel 7, it's, they're pictured as the ten horns on the fourth or terrible beast. Now, notice the parallels between chapter 2 and chapter 7, especially in the final phase of the Roman Empire. The ten horns in Daniel 2 are toes, and the ten horns in Daniel 7 are identified as kings. Yet we know, if we look at history, that the Roman Empire never existed in a ten-king form, as required both by Daniel 2 and 7. That's why we're saying the Roman Empire revived, one of the reasons. And also there is a complete, a sudden destruction of the great statue in Daniel 2 and the final beast in Daniel 7. By contrast, though, what happened to the Roman Empire? It gradually deteriorated, didn't it? It gradually declined until the western part of the empire fell in A.D. 476 and the eastern part was cut off in A.D. 1453. A more gradual process than what is described in these visions, isn't it? So we see that this Roman Empire has been left unfulfilled, the picture of it, the sudden destruction of the feet of the statue and the ten horn stage of the beast. Now, the principal reason for believing in the revival of the ancient Roman Empire is the simple fact that prophecy speaks of it. It requires it. Prophecy dealing with the final phase of the empire have not yet been fulfilled literally in the same way as the prophecies uh, you know, about the first three world empires have been fulfilled. That took, you know, that, that's been fulfilled. We know that. But this one has not been fulfilled. Not the way that Daniel saw it. And because the final form of the empires described in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 have not yet occurred, we probably need to conclude that a revived form of the ancient Roman Empire is yet to appear. On the stage of history, it has not yet appeared. And we need, we, if this is to be fulfilled the way that God gave it to Daniel, then we need to expect it to appear in the future. According to Daniel, the future form of the Roman Empire will emerge prior to the coming of Christ to rule uh, over the earth. And the future manifestation will take the form of a coalition or confederation of ten world leaders as symbolized by the ten toes and the ten horns whose power... surpasses everything else. 
that's been mentioned. The final form of the Roman Empire will eventually begin as some form of democracy and then progress to a dictatorship, antichrist ruling. And just like the historical Roman Empire began as a republic and eventually became a dictatorship ruled by Caesar, this will also become that way. Now when Daniel presents these two forms of Roman Empire, he skips over a period of many centuries as he goes from the historical Rome immediately to the revived Rome. And this is not uncommon in the Old Testament, is it? When you look at prophecy, you may see a prophecy talking about the birth of Christ, and then all of a sudden you see a prophecy talking about his return. There's, you know, there's, uh, this is not uncommon. And the reason being is it's because they're not seeing the valley in between the two hills. All that is taking place during that time. And so they're just giving us the views that, G, that the Lord gives them and it is relayed to us. And so it appears that the future revived Roman Empire will go through three major stages. First, a group of ten kings or some form of ruling uh, hierarchy will appear. This, you know, and it's described as a group of ten. And this will mark the first phase of the empire's revival. Second of all, a strong man will emerge who will consolidate these ten nations into a united empire and probably extend its borders in, in various directions. And third, this revived empire will by decoration or edict extend its power to the entire world the antichrist will simply declare he is ruler of the world and he will fill in that vacuum that people are looking for so the final stage may be in a state of partial disintegration when Christ returns. In other words, what I'm saying is there will be a decline here uh, somewhat in his rule, but it will only be a partial decline, and it will probably uh, come from the uh, Russian-Islamic alliance of Gog and Magog described in Ezekiel 38 through 39, where they wage war. And we can see this as I talked about it earlier. Islamic nations. They're not going to like it too well when they are told that they have to worship him. And some may that are not that complete and not that strict in their beliefs, but others will not. And it's probable that the revived Roman Empire will include nations from Europe and possibly even from northern Africa and some nations from Western Asia. Since the revived Roman Empire is viewed to some extent as including three uh, preceding empires that were large, largely uh, Asiatic. You know. So... Uh, 
because the Holy Land is a center of biblical interest, uh, it would only be natural for the empire to include this, this area. Now, although the uh, specific identity of the ten um, kings or world leaders can't be determined at this time, there has been much speculation concerning the materials that uh, form the toes and the image described in Daniel chapter 2. They're described as what? Being partly iron and partly a pottery or dried clay. And so iron does not mix good with clay. Therefore, the feet of the image are the weakest part of the entire statue. <coughs> the mixture of iron and clay shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermingling. Strong nations will mix with weak nations, but they'll not be able to hold themselves together, just as iron and clay do not. And because the uh, statue's legs of iron represent the strength of the ancient Roman Empire, the clay must uh, represent the uh, weaker part of it. And so uh, we see the instability there, uh, maybe political weakness or whatever. So the best interpretation is that the clay mixed with iron represents the divine racial, religious, or political elements that are included in the makeup of this final revived Roman Empire. And these elements will also contribute to its ultimate downfall because they do not mix good together. The mixture of iron and clay in the feet and toes of the statue or inherent strength and weaknesses at the same time is reflected in the European Union today. The EU has great economic and political clout, but its diversity in culture, language, and politics is also ever-present. Strong nations have joined together with weak ones, just as Daniel predicted. And their strengths and weaknesses are the source of ongoing difficulties and conflicts. At least two key events in the 20th century provided the necessary driving force for the uh, reuniting of Europe. First, there were the two world wars. And for centuries, the nations of Europe, they fought, what? Against one another. And so, uh, at, in the aftermath of World War II, a dramatic change occurred. Instead of building up for the next great armed conflict, as they had been doing in the past for so many years, they decided to come together and form a coalition of nations that was originally called the common market. And for the, uh, the time, first time in 1600 years, the, uh, the necessary preconditions for a reunited, revised Roman empire predicted by Daniel had come about. They were in place. 
And this, established, this was established at least on the surface. They thought that, that that would bring about peace and a peaceful relationship between the major countries, but they found out that they, there's still problems going on there. And second of all, the dissolution of the um, and dissolving of the, uh, the Soviet Union in 1991 has played a key role also. The eight European na uh, nations that joined the EU in 2004 could never have joined as long as the Soviet bloc was still in power. So the fall of Soviet Union in 1991 was, a, was key to the changes that have taken place since. Economic, self-interest, nat uh, national security, and the threat of international terrorism in Europe and Middle East point to the necessity for the alliance of nations so that they can bring peace and economic prosperity to the, to the region. And this is why it's going to be fulfilled the way Daniel says. They're going to come together. They're thinking that this will bring about the peace. And at the time, you know, uh, you know, in, in 2010, uh, the UK had about uh, 736 members, I believe, and uh, a parliament, uh, and it was built to resemble the Tower of Babel, a Supreme Court, a European uh, passport, numerous ruling committees, and one currency that has uh, been approved by 16 of the 27 member nations and is presently in, in, or was presently and has been presently in, in uh, circulation. And the EU is presently working towards a unified military and criminal justice system. Listen to that, people. A military and criminal justice system that will be ruled worldwide. The combined population of the EU is now in excess of what, 500 million? And so compared with a little over 300 million people out, uh, in the US, and so Europe has now emerged as the richest region in the world. In 2007, the US lost its seat to the European Union as the world's largest economy. The EU, uh, EU's economy produced 14 at that time, and this is 2010, 14.4, or 27, um, trillion in goods and services, while the U.S. gross domestic product came, or its domestic product came up to 13.86 trillion. Now, in the wake of the economic meltdown of 2008, wealth declined in North America by 20%. And by contrast, assets in Europe shrunk only by 5.8%. Europe now boasts the world's biggest economy. China is now boasting it, isn't it? Now, I, I don't believe all of this is an accident that has happened over in, in Europe. I believe that it's fulfillment of Scripture. The basic governmental and economic components seem to be in place for some kind of ten ruler group or committee. 
And it seems to be in place for it to come on the scene in the EU and ascend to power. And the next step will be for one man in that group to rise. And he will rise to ultimate power and take over the rule of the world. And that man will be the Antichrist. He will rule over a final form of the Roman Empire and ultimately the whole earth. Now, you know the UK has tried to adopt a constitution. And it's been shot down by referendum votes in, in France and uh, the Netherlands and other places. So the leaders of Europe circumvented a popular vote and went the route of putting together a treaty that could be approved by representatives of each nation rather than popular vote. Wow, wouldn't that be nice for America too? Yeah, exactly. And do you think that this is not falling in place for the end times, what's happening even here in America? It's known as the Lisbon Treaty. And this treaty came into effect in December, the, on December the 1st, 2009. And it's a major step that could pave the way for one man to rise to that power, that ascendancy of power over Europe. And the treaty effectively ends national sovereignty for most European nations. From this point onward, most of the key decisions for the citizens of Europe will be made by, listen to this, by a small group of European elitists. Made possible from this point onward, most of the key decisions for the citizens of Europe will be made by a small group of a European elitist. Wow. This points to the group of ten leaders predicted in Daniel. So the Bible says that the coming Antichrist, the final ruler of the reunited Roman Empire, will come to power by the consent of the ruling group, not the world, but the ruling group of ten that will be in power during that time. So the ten horns symbolize ten rulers. Another shall rise from them. That will be the little horn, the Antichrist. The little horn will first conquer three of the ten rulers. He will speak out against the true God of heaven. This is all in Daniel chapter 7. He will persecute the saints. And the Antichrist will harass and also persecute believers without mercy. Many will be martyred, and Jews also. Think for a minute about the persecutions and the church. Is the church heading towards greater persecution? 
with what we've seen in the last five to ten years, a believer would be blind, I think, living in the last five to ten years as an adult to believe otherwise. It says that his career will come to a sudden and disastrous end, this little horn, in verses 26 and 27. The fate of the Antichrist and his kingdom will come to an end when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes to earth to defeat and destroy him. Do you know what is inscribed on a marble wall at the headquarters of the United Nations in New York? Or what was inscribed there? I guess it's still there. It was a portion of one of the books in the Bible, Isaiah. Isaiah 2.4, it says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's what they developed and they set out after the wars as a nation. But we know that one's coming and promising all of this, the false Messiah, the Antichrist. And the one thing that they left off, though, about that verse was this. That is the first part of it. And he, God, shall rule among the nations and shall rebuke many people. Isn't it amazing they left that part off? Because man they think, can solve all the problems. Man can rule and reign and take care of everything and bring peace here on earth, which he can't. It will never happen. The only one who can do that is Jesus Christ as he comes to rule and reign. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you that no matter what may come about, that we have hope in you, that our hope is eternal. Not because of anything that we've done, not because of who we are, but because of what you've done and who you are. We know that it doesn't matter who might rise and who might fall, who might bring persecution and who might try to bring peace, who might deceive, who might try to rule and reign and, and uh, claim to be the Messiah. We know that all of these, and the ultimate one, the Antichrist, will ultimately fall. That you are the God who is in charge, that you're sovereign, and that you're over all. And we have that hope only because our hope is in Jesus Christ who has forgiven us if we've placed our faith in Christ and sought forgiveness, who has forgiven us for our sins, cleansed us from all unrighteousness and brought us into the family of God. Thank you for that. And it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter what it is. It can't separate us from your love. 
from you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We can't be separated from that if we're a child of yours. Thank you for that, God. Help us to share that with others. As we leave this place, help it be a, a burden upon our minds and our hearts that we know the outcome, we know what's happening, we know the direction that many are going in, and, and Lord, just help us to redirect them. We know that be used by you to redirect them. We know that it's got to be you uh, revealing this to their hearts and, and them choosing to, as their eyes are open to receive you. But we're the messengers, so help us to be that messenger that takes the light to a dark and dying world. Doomed world. Thank you, God, for the hope, for the calling, for the eternal presence that you have with us and security that you've given in our hearts and our lives. And thank you that we can share it with others. Help us to be faithful in doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. God's dealing with your heart and your soul. Won't you come? Jesus, keep me place that we can find rest amen in Christ let's go away rejoicing in the Lord but before we do are there any announcements anything that you'd like to share anything uplifting and anything praiseworthy anything okay if not then let's just go away praising the Lord in song what a mighty God